Welcome to the Modernist Society Podcast. I'm your host in Chicago, Eric Ottens. And I'm Jason Mojica in New York. Anarchist, New York. That's a location now? Oh yeah, didn't you hear Bill Barr declared New York an anarchist jurisdiction? The home of Wall Street is, is now an anarchist jurisdiction. It's, hmm. it's crazy here. No rules. Putting the, uh, putting the big A in Big Apple. <laughs> Great. This is, this is my crass reference for the episode. I don't know if you know, but I do a crass reference in every episode. You have to really <laughs> dig deep to find them. I mean, I know that the Circle A is like an anarchy sign and that they use it in their logo. Did they do some specific... Like, That's one of the few bands, like when I was really more enthusiastically trying to check out anything punk I could get my hands on, I kind of dug into that and I was like, wow, between like... This is the the opposite end of the spectrum of just like no songs, all politics. And I was like, I just can't, like, I can't hang with this. Uh, Big A, Little A is uh, uh, my, yeah. my favorite Rings song and probably arguably the, their catchiest song. Uh, it's an acquired taste. It takes a little bit of effort, but that's weirdly, probably where I went wrong. Weirdly, and maybe the most bougie thing I'll say is great exercise music. <laughs> great, great for workouts. Yeah, in your condo building. Here's my game for this for this intro. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, I'm gonna tell you a story about how I met Mike Rogers. And you give me your honest feedback on a scale of one to ten, how comprehensible, interesting, or appropriate this story is as an intro for this podcast. (laughs) Sounds compelling. I'm interested already. Great. So, as I mentioned, my, my wife and I try to go to Tokyo every year. And the last time we were there, about a year and a half ago, we were at a watching a show and, um, a guy that we know, Suna Glam Sam from a band called Young Parisian, they've been a glam band there forever started saying that guy that guy over there uh he was was rockas rotas and i was like the california band he was like yeah and i was like wow okay, and what was I, the word that he was saying well i'm trying to say it how he said okay, it okay, which i enough. at the time yeah, thought was was rockers who mm-hmm. have like a power pop seven inch from california like 1981 so i go up to this guy and i'm like you're in the rockers he's like yeah and I was like, wow. So we start talking. I don't know what tipped me off. Maybe he named a song title. And I was like, oh, wrong band. Rotters, not rockers. <laughs> I'm not, I mean, it's hard for, in other languages and especially Japanese to get something like that across. So um, a fortunate case of mistaken identity that, that panned out to be a wonderful guest for today's episode. There you go. I know neither of those bands. That's why I figured it's a stupid story. Nobody listening would. <laughs> Uh, what was your other idea for the intro? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, so, I guess well, my... tell me who who is Mike Rogers and and who were the Rotters, <laughs> the Rotters. Thank you. Good pronunciation, Jason. Well, I mean, this is why I figured he'd be a great guest because we ended up keeping in touch via some social media anyway. So nowadays, so I thought if you have a triple triple threat overlap of my interest area, which is like Japan, Japanese punk, and like being a foreigner in Japan, as far as an intro, he was in a, a late seventies obscure first wave of a punk California punk band called The Rotters. They had a couple song titles like "Sit on My Face," Stevie Nicks, "Sink the Whales," "Buy Japanese Goods." Both sentiments with which I still wholeheartedly agree. If I used that same joke in the episode, you can edit it out. <laughs> and uh, and then he and he was in another band in maybe the early '80s called the Woofy Dogs. And then I, he, I'm sure he says he moved to Japan maybe like mid '80s, which to me is like really early and a really interesting time. And you know, he's been there ever since. So to me, that's all very interesting, and uh, I consider that a sufficient intro of our of our of mike rogers our guest today oh and now so he's very enthusiastically doing a uh, like a radio show basically about pretty underground japanese indies music and he's gotten managed to get that syndicated on like terrestrial radio all over the world which is yeah. uh 
very impressive in and of itself. So indeed. Three, two, one. Okay, well, that's fine. <laughs> I didn't realize I was supposed to do it as well. Sorry. Nah, it just makes it easier <laughs> to edit for you. You don't look like you 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 don't look like you're in Japan. That's a very spacious pad you have there. Oh, yeah, we bought this house 20 years ago. How many years ago? 14? Oh, that's all. Oh, so never. <laughs> Tell that dog to shut up. <laughs> make sure he won't bark a, during the uh, It's interview. a real wolfy dog. Yeah. Hey, that's a joke. That is a joke. <laughs> <laughs> all right well uh yeah so i gotta get in my i'm gonna thank you for for being with us uh i just know that you seem like a really interesting guy to me with a storied career spanning from your early days in punk bands in california to your current uh video and radio shows there in tokyo and I just want to kind of go through chronologically and ask you about various experiences. Oh, well, okay. Well, then I'll just start. Um, actually, I started off in rock and roll, I think, when I was about eight years old. No mm -hmm. kidding. So I'm talking about in the 60s. I think it was like probably, yeah, maybe 64, 65. My mom and dad would go somewhere. I have two older, uh, an older brother and a younger brother. And, but I always got stuck with the babysitter. My and my parents had this awesome stereo, like one of those sixties. Where stuff. was this? Sorry, oh, this to interrupt. was where. Where in the world is this? This was in Minnesota. Okay. <clears throat> so these babysitter girls would come over, and they loved coming over to our house because my parents had this awesome stereo, and I mean mm -hmm. it was like state of the art at that time. You know, a big box, and they would bring over records, and I'd sit on the sofa while these girls would go go dance. And play these records. It was, you know, they were playing the Beatles and the Tommy James and the Shondells. And not maybe, maybe not that, not then. But um, anyways, from maybe 64 to about 68 or so, I went through this experience many times with these beautiful high school girls coming over to babysit me. They would go, go dance, and they would play this rock and roll music on my parents' stereo. I could see where this would be very influential. It would make an impression on me, that's for sure. <laughs> and... um. I really liked 60s rock because when in those days, um, punk, and I, I know they don't call it punk, they called it bubblegum rock, um, was top 40. And these bands like um, the Seeds, Seeds would be, you know, pushing too hard. I don't know if it got in the top 10, but it was like a big hit. And they would play that music for me. And I really, really, really loved it. And then um, anyway... I got older, and then we moved back to California. I'm born, born, I was born in California. Moved back to California, I think, in the 1970 or so. And um, um, so what was my train? Oh, yeah. So um, anyways, I went to high school, was a regular dork kid. I was a geek. And all the kids, I went to a huge high school that had like 3,000 students in it. And I was the only one who liked I loved early Alice Cooper and early Bowie and T-Rex. And then when I turned 16, I got a car and I had like 16 cassette tapes in there and they were all Bowie, Alice Cooper and T-Rex. That was the only thing I would listen to. You guys, you guys are youngsters. So do you, have you ever listened to Alice Cooper's Billion Dollar Babies album? You know what? I mean, I love, I got to tell you, I'm a little record nerdy on this, as you've maybe picked up on. The first one, the Zappa one, I can't really handle. But then right after that, oh, what's it called? The first one, he's got his thumb sticking through the fly. I can't believe I can't think of this. To me, that's like the first good one. That's great. Then you got Killer. I might be forgetting one. Billion Dollar Babies. That's the sweet era for me. Yeah. So Billion Dollar Babies just really blew my mind and I really got into it, and like I said, in high school, I was a geek, so I, I think I was the only kid in high school who liked that kind of music. Then it moved into the suite, and then I think it was 1970s 
75 or 76 or so, disco music boomed. And man, did I hate disco music. But everybody <laughs> loved it. And I, at that time, all the big rock bands started doing ballads. Like um, Kiss did Beth, Aerosmith did, I can't even remember what na- the names of the songs were. And I thought it should be against the law for heavy metal bands to do ballads. I really thought it was, <laughs> should be against the law. And I really thought they gave up their position and everybody started liking disco music. And man, did I hate disco music. So anyway, for three years, again, I'm kind of an outcast and listening to my, my little core of music. And then one day, and then I got into college in 1977. I come home from uh, college one day. And of course, this is the 70s. Don't blame me. I was stoned. Of course, everyone was stoned in the 70s. And we t- I turn on the TV and here's this news report about this sick, disgusting punk rock boom going on in London. And I just got stoned and I watched it for a while. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. And I, I, <laughs> I got into that and I went down to the local record store. The record store was called The Warehouse. I walk in and I say to the guy at the counter, hey, do you have any punk rock? And he's like, what? Uh, punk rock. It's, it's like a new British music, you know. And he goes, yeah, the imports are over there. Go go look over there. I was going to say imports. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then um, I, I didn't even know who I was looking for. I didn't know any of the names of the bands or anything. And so I just started rifling through the imports. And I kept seeing, you know, and I think I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, what am I looking for? I don't know what I'm looking for. But I know it's not guys like Cliff Richard with really nice crew cut hair. It's, it's, that's not it. And then I found the Dams record, the Dams first record. And I thought, what is this shit? Is it okay for me to say shit? What is this shit these guys got (laughs) smashed all over their faces? Thank you for not waiting for confirmation and just (laughs) rolling right into it. And then then I turned over the backside and I looked and there was a Dracula guy and the guy wearing a waitress just just, I said, this is it, this is it. I bought that record, Mm -hmm. took it home. And I just started playing it and I was so into it because it reminded me of like the music I liked when I was a little kid, you know, like uh, 1910 Fruit Gum Company, Ohio Express, even the monkeys. It just had that beat. So I had really long hair at the time. So I took a scissors out and I just chopped off all my hair. My dad was a U.S. Marine and he came home and my older brother said, Mike cut his hair. And my dad said, well, that's good of him to do that. And he opened up my bedroom door, and I'm just sitting there listening to this music, and he goes, God damn it, and slammed the door. Because my hair was just like a mess. But, I'm uh, sure. And so that's how I got into punk, and I ca- called a few friends of mine. Did you see that TV show? Um, it was on PBS uh, about the punk rock stuff, and most of my friends would have watched it because – before that time, they had Monty Python on. Mm-hmm. And the, the geek kids all were really into Monty Python. So we would watch that, and then we would watch that, that show. So one of my friends I found out was a drummer. And, and he said, yeah, let's just make a band. Let's make a band. And then um, um, we put up posters around the, the university we were going to. Hey, we're making a band. We need a bassist and a guitarist. So the poster was probably up for about a week. And... Uh, he and I used to ride, drive our car to school, and um, we're, we're discussing in the car, why is it that we put this sign up, nobody answered us, not a single person. So I said, maybe we're doing this wrong, Bruce. And uh, his name was Bruce Brink, and that's his real name, Bruce Brink. And um, let's, let's make a poster that says we have a show on such and such a date. I'll go talk to the the mm-hmm. university professor who's in charge of the stage they had a stage area there and book a date and then we're going to play we're just going to play even if we don't have a band we're going to play and he said okay so we put that up there and that day we must have got 30 or 40 responses from people mm-hmm. and then we had auditions and the the first guy came in was a guy named Tom Chartier who who eventually became Fester Swollen and um, he was just awesome. We couldn't believe our eyes. He was like, how do you do that? 
So anyway, so we made the band, and then we played our f- first show at Moore Park College. It had to be 77. And people really liked us. And our bassist that we had at that time was a guy named Rod. I'm sorry, what is, what is the band called? Oh, the Rodders. Since so, we so were, I, I'm sorry. I don't want to. I don't want to interrupt too much. I'm. I'm thinking of questions as you go because I'm thinking like, were you playing more palatable music, or did people? I would just expect that most people would not have liked what you were playing. So, uh, respectfully, I'm surprised that people were that it got it was so well received by so many people. Well, I that was a, a film and music university, so p- people were kind of into different things, and so the place was packed. I mean, there was no seats left, and people were really happy, and they really liked us. So then I, I talked to the professor who ran the, the stage area, who ran the recording classes, and I told him, hey, we want to come in and record a record and stuff. I, I hear you need bands to record. And they did. You know, the students learning how to be an engineer, and they just need people to come in and play. So we came in there, and we recorded the first record um, in one, probably five or six hours. And on that record was Sit On My Face, Stevie Nicks. After we were recorded, he said, you know, you guys are no good, but you have a lot of fun. And it comes out <laughs> on the record. So I'll master your record. And then if you want to make it, go ahead and make it. So he mastered the record. We took it down to this some factory. I can't remember where. And then we, we manufactured a thousand records, a thousand seven inch records of this single. And then um we took it down to Los Angeles to meet Rodney Bingenheimer. Do you guys know who Rodney Bingenheimer is? Sure, Rodney on the Rock. Yeah, so um, we met him. Get off the air. Yeah, we Get met. Off the air. Yeah, that's Angry Samoans. I know them very well. I know PJ Galligan. <laughs> PJ Galligan and I went to high school together. Wow. So, yeah, he was a real, real geek, too. But anyway, <laughs> we went to the Go Go's debut show, and they opened for the uh, Dickies. And Rodney was mm-hmm. sitting there with Belinda Carlisle, and we gave him a record. And he was really, really, Rodney's a really nice guy. He's nice to everybody. So he took the record, and he played it on his radio show. And I guess the reaction was, like, amazing. So the next week, we decided to crash K-Rock during his show. So we just drove down to Pasadena, looked for the K-Rock building, found the building, drove around the back, because there's no way the front door is going to be open at that time of night. And I'm sitting in the passenger side of the car, and I look up in the, these stairs, and here's four guys standing up there, and they look like punks. Leather jackets and everything. I said, this is, this is, just stop the car, stop the car. And I was a cross-country runner, so I just, I just flew up those stairs, <laughs> three or four flights of stairs, got up to the top of the stairs. Those four guys looked at me like, who are you, and ignored me. And then the right then the door opened and the guy let them those four in and he looked at me and I was holding records. I'm here to see Rodney. And he's like, okay, come on in. So I went in there and those four guys were the uh, Ramones. And mm-hmm. this is why actually maybe um, Sit On My Face Stevie Nicks became such a huge hit because when he had us on the air, he said, yeah, you guys like, you guys like the Ramones too, don't you? And I said, um, well... Yeah, I, actually, I like the Sex Pistols better. <laughs> and then the, all the Ramones were like, oh, and then they kicked us out of the studio. But then after that, the station was inundated with requests for Sit On My Face, Stevie Nicks. And Rodney told me that it was the most requested song in the history of his radio show. Uh-huh. Sweet. So that's the story of the Rodders. And then we, we played in the Rodders band uh, for only a year. But we used to play with, like, you know, Dead Kennedys and Fear and Black Flag and bands like that. It was a lot of fun. I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I have never done a reunion show with those guys. They're still playing. 
Hmm. Yeah, it's. I, I kind of think like no, guys, you know, punk punk should be young, skinny, good looking guys, not not seventy <laughs> year old guys who are fat. So you know, but Japan is the best for that because they bring over if there is any late seventies punk band, they want to see you play with as close to the original lineup as possible. That's true. And I love it. I mean, yeah. That's true. I went to a Richie Ramone show one time in Japan, and I was surprised to find out the Vibrators were opening, and wow. it had the original drummer from the Vibrators. I was just shocked. Hmm. So, yeah. So anyway, so that's how I got into, um being a radio DJ, I, I came to Japan on August 28th of 1983. Mm. And I'd already been here six or seven times. I don't know if this is an interesting story to you guys. I used to get a, I got a scholarship from the United States, uh, California government. And they paid me seven. You know, these are basically all the questions that I was going to ask. So if we cut me out and you just start answering all the questions, that works for me. So I would say go for it. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, yeah. California government. The California government paid paid me $7,200 a year to go to university. Wow. So by the time I graduated, um, I didn't owe anyone anything. And every year they would send me the $7,000 check. I had to take it to the university and then pass a little stupid interview and fill out some forms. I, they would cash the check for me through the bank, and then I would get the money, and then I would take like $1,000, $1,500, and I would come to Japan for a month, <laughs> like in January, end of December, January. And so I, I'd been here a bunch of times already by then, and yeah. I really, really liked Japan. Well, the 80s must have been a fascinating time to have been in Japan and especially to be an American in Japan because, I mean, my memory of uh, at least the perception of Japan in the 80s was they were taking over the world. They were taking, it was like the big, the height of the electronics, bro- electronics boom, Japanese cars being imported and seen as a threat to the American way of life and uh, so on. Sink the whales. Um a lot of that has to do with the value of the yen versus the, the dollar because it used to be, I can't remember, like 279 yen to the dollar, I think, when I first came here. And so if you compare that with like now, it's like 100 yen a dollar. Um, the, what, costs, what costs like $4 million back in those days now costs a million three, right? Mm-hmm. So that made that kind of... Uh, warp the value and it's difficult for me to compare things but i think japan has gotten there's basically no inflation in this country so like a price of gasoline right now is about 124 yen a dollar 24 a gallon uh, a liter but when i first got a car like it was 1995 it was 95 yen so basically the same thing. But back in those days, yeah, um, Jason, it, um, it was really wild. I used to walk around Shibuya. There were no foreigners, no foreigners at all. And people would run up to me with a notebook and say, will you sign? Give me your signature. And I'd be like, um, I'm not a famous person. And they'd go, no, no, I don't care. I don't care. And then <laughs> this is a funny story. One day I was walking um, by Shibuya Station, and this kid runs up to me. He goes, hey, where do you buy your fashions? I'm like, what? <laughs> like, your fashions? Where do you buy your fashions? I'm like, I don't know. I just take them out of the drawer or whatever is, whatever is clean on top. Wait, see, see this is how I... <laughs> this is my usual clothes. I'm just wearing... And he was like, that's so cool. It's like, wow, I want to buy fashions like that. I said, go to Kmart. <laughs> they got it in America there. You know, I did want to sidetrack you on a, on a couple of questions at one point. One, I'm curious about uh, like if you were starting to study Japanese at that time or when your language skills kind of came along. Um, actually, Eric, I'm half Japanese. My mom is from Kokura and Kyushu. But, but, you know, that being said, she never taught us any Japanese. And she was very against me moving to Japan. Really? Why? Well, I had a really good job, and I was a stockbroker, and I owned a... Really? Wow. 
I owned a car, uh, two cars, and owned a house and everything by the time I was 25. But mm -hmm. those guys are criminals. And I just decided, like, <laughs> I cannot do this. I mean, they were, I, I don't want to get into it, but they were, like, lying to people and getting uh -huh. them to, to buy stuff that was against their best interests. And one day they did it to a lady who had, she was 40 years old, didn't drink, didn't smoke. She had a stroke, and the left side of her body was paralyzed. And they went in and lied to her and um, told her to buy all these new policies and things like that. And that, that was the day I just said, I'm quitting, I'm leaving. And I told my wife, do you want to move back to Japan? And she said, yeah. And I said, okay, we'll, we'll go to Japan for a couple of years and just check it out and then maybe move to Italy or just figure out something. But so mm. that's been 38 years ago, 38, mm. something like that. It's a tough place to leave. I was there six and a half years and I was probably right on the cusp. I kind of remember thinking like, if I don't move back now, I probably never will. <laughs> so uh, it's a very livable place. I get it. Well, I had another, this is kind of unrelated. I'm kind of jumping around a bit, but one thing I was very curious about, uh, I don't want to spend the, the whole time on the rotters, but something I was very, uh, it just struck me that it would be an interesting perspective because all things considered, that's a pretty obscure uh, record that came out. And I was wondering when it was brought to your attention that it's considered quite desirable and collectible now and what it was like when that, when you found that out? Um, well, all these years I'd, I'd moved to Japan. I never told anyone what I did before. Never. Because, and you, you, you probably know this, uh, Jason, have you been to Japan? Yes. Okay. Yes. You guys, you guys know this, that most foreigners in Japan are big mouths. You know, big mouths, they just talk big and say all this bullshit. So I just never said anything, and I never told anyone. And then I think 2015, it was 14, um, one day my one of my friends wrote to me on Facebook. He said, you won't believe this, but our record sold for like $2,400. And I was like, what? What, somebody's that stupid? <laughs> <laughs> and, and and then you know, there was another band we were in after the Rodgers, Woofy Dogs, that you obviously know. And uh, that record sold for a lot of money. And I, like I said, I never told anyone. So in 2015, I made a feature film called Ghost Roads. I don't know if you mm -hmm. probably haven't seen it, but um, and it's a rock and roll, Japanese rock and roll ghost movie. And it stars the Neat Beats. And oh, yeah. Oh, okay. So the neat beats were in it, and and uh, we're at their their house shooting in their studio one day. I go to the bathroom, and here in the bathroom is a a big fat book like this about Phil Spector, and I just looked at it. And I just picked it up. I opened the page, and there was a photo of Rodney Bingenheimer and Phil Spector, and I went back to see those guys, and I said, "Hey, you know, I thought." Here, they're doing a movie with me. They're not getting paid anything. Nobody in the studio is getting paid anything. The camera, nobody. I thought they'd really trusted me, you know? And I said, um, you guys like uh, Phil Spector? And they were like, yeah, he's a god. And I said, wow. Um, I've met him like three times. And they were like, you could tell by the expression on their face. They were like, you're so full of shit. You're such a bullshit. And I was like, no, 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 no. Believe me, I, I have, I have. You, do you guys, you guys know Rodney Bingenheimer? And they were like, yo, he's a legendary DJ. And I said, I was Rodney's assistant from 1980 to 1981. And you could tell that they just did not believe anything I said. And I was like, no, really? And I just, oh, okay, fuck it. Just fuck it. Okay, never mind. <laughs> I just stormed out. So that was, that was in February of 2015. And then in May of 2015, Rodney writes me a mail and says, hey, I'm coming to, to Japan. Can you be a tour guide for us? And I was like, wow, cool wow sure, Rodney, I'm going to do that. So when that happened, I wrote a letter to all these rock bands I knew. I said, Rodney Bingenheimer is coming to Japan. And if you want to meet him, I can arrange it. You take us to lunch or take us to dinner. And you're p paying for the dinner. And, and everything. So I had his schedule all booked up. In the daytime, we'd go walking around Asakusa or something like that and then be back like in Shinjuku or something for lunch and then dinner at some place. And uh, that was the time I told everybody. 
started telling everybody what I did. But now I don't have to because everybody knows. But mm-hmm. b- before that, it just doesn't seem to me good. Uh, it's kind of anti-Japanese society to blow, toot one's own horn, so to say. Mm-hmm. So that, that's right. why. You know, I thought your sentence uh, about most foreigners uh, are, I thought you were going to say Brazilian. But that was maybe just my limited experience. There, I like. No, a, a lot of foreigners, and I meet a lot of foreigners here, and it's just like, why don't you just shut up? Like one guy, one guy just, every time he meets someone, he's like, I sold 28 million records, you know, and did ministry and stuff. It's like, no one, no one cares, you know. No one cares. Don't don't tell people that. If if they they want to know, they'll find out. Mm. You know. But um, yeah. So, anyhow, th- that was a kind of a watershed time for me. And then um, I had been doing radio since the eighties, and in two thousand and eighteen, in June. Uh, the radio station I had been working for for like 24 years canceled my show. Hmm. And I don't want to complain about it, but uh, those assholes. No. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> they canceled my show because I didn't have a sponsor. But when I they hired me to do the show, they said, you don't need a sponsor. Because it was on, it was on at 5 o'clock in the morning on Sunday. <laughs> no FM station in Japan has a sponsor at that time. So... I agreed to do it. Then they canceled the show because I don't have a sponsor. And I don't know if you guys drink, but I drank every day for like a month. A month. And I was just fucked up all the time. And just like, what am I going to do? I'm 63 years old. I can't can't do anything else. And then this radio station in London contacted me and said, hey, will you make your show for us? And I was kind of like, I don't know, you know, internet radio, hmm. Because there's no mm-hmm. really no internet radio in Japan, and uh, the guy said, "Hey, I'll I'll broadcast it. I'll schedule it so that it's broadcast at the exact same time as your old show was." And I thought, "Oh, that's a good idea." So so we have, and it's become very popular. And I'm I'm on 38 radio stations in 18 countries, and if you guys. You guys are doing podcasting, right? This is a podcast. Is this correct? Visual too, correct. or just sound? No. Okay. This is just for our to ease our communications to to lubricate the conversation with smiles and nods. Well, so so the um um it dawned on me. I I thought, okay, wait a minute. I got to study um this internet radio and figure out why it is no one's getting paid, and then I figured it out. The, the reason why no one gets paid is they'll get a show on some station and do that show and they won't try to syndicate that show. Mm-hmm. So I thought, wait a minute, if I can syndicate the show and get it on a lot of stations, then it'll be easier for me to a- approach sponsors. And mm-hmm. it hasn't worked out exactly the way I thought, but a company has contacted me and now I do a show for them and mm-hmm. Uh, get paid a lot more than I did at the regular Japanese radio station. So between, between I'm doing two Mike Rogers shows. There's one hour show. There's a two hour show. And then I do a show called color red radio with Mike Rogers. And I'm getting paid about two and a half, uh, three and a half times what inter FM used to pay me. So there is a way, everyone who's listening to this, your podcaster, your internet radio, or whatever you're doing, it's possible for you to get paid. You just got to think about it. It's going to probably take a year of good effort and making quality broadcasting and quality content. But um, it, it's really, I think it's really good. I think it's really good you guys do this podcast. Well, thanks. You know? Yeah, I was going to say the quality broadcasting is where we fall short, but, but you know, certainly quality. Uh, Quantity has a quality all its own. Yeah. So just keep at it, man. Just keep at it because hey. you guys, there, uh, I don't know if you notice, I, I check out a lot of podcasts and stuff. It seems to me that um, right now, and I'm not political at all, um, most of the really, really, really famous podcasters are um, 
what what sword do you guys use? Um, right, right, right wing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Very few, very, very few left wing. And I think, well, of course, music is kind of left wing, isn't it? I'm not sure, but and I not don't. Not the stuff I listen most to most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> very well, few cops make very few cops <laughs> start bands. True. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Okay, so Mike, I wanted to. Mm. I wanted to. And I, this is a question just on the topic of your radio show, or at least the one I've. I've heard more of. I noticed there's a definite mix of Japanese and English, whether it's kind of like in different sections or segments or even like mid, you know, sentence kind of switching back and forth. Um, <clears throat> perhaps, I don't know, I'm just curious why you chose to arrange it that way. Um, because my Japanese is so bad. I've been here so long. My Japanese is so bad that, and I probably... Maybe you guys do this. When you, you you speak English and then you have to switch to Japanese, you have to flip a switch in your brain. And going back and forth and flipping that switch can really get you confused. And I'm often, you, you'll notice I probably stutter all the time on my show. I'm often confused on what I'm trying to say. And it's just kind of like, it doesn't matter anyway. It's a garage punk underground music show. It doesn't yeah, matter. It, it suits the energy. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so... um some people tell me do more Japanese. Some people tell me do more English. So I, I just like, I'm just going to do it. And if I'm really, really, really hungover when I do it, then it's probably a lot more English. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to ask too, I think this is the, fr- I, I guess I vaguely were aware that your show was quite syndicated. I didn't really know to what extent or where. So the one where you're speaking Japanese, is that the one that's being broadcast in London? That would make no sense, right? No, it, it, it is. Oh, okay. Cool. Okay. The, the two-hour show is in Japanese and English, probably, I'd say, 60 70% Japanese. And that show is brought, uh, broadcast in England, Italy, Germany, France, Russia, um, so many countries. And I'm, I'm surprised that they tell me that it's a popular show, and they have a lot of Japanese listeners. So a lot of Japanese listeners, and then people who are like us, I guess Japanophiles, and they, they listen to it because they want to... I don't know why. I'm, not a, I'm definitely not a good Japanese language instructor, that's for sure. And, <laughs> but, um, and then kids who want to hear really new music, because that's what I play. And um, mm-hmm. I'm just lucky because I... In Japan, I'm the first and the only internet radio DJ because um, there is no internet radio in this country. There's FM radio that broadcasts on internet, internet, uh, what do you call it, on the internets, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and and, um, the Japanese. Is FM radio still popular there? No. Oh, okay. Nobody listens. Nobody listens on the radio. But there are, and this is a whole different conversation. There's regular FM stations, then there's community FM stations. The regular FM stations are privately run businesses, and they're all in bad shape. The community FM stations are smaller broadcast area on FM radio, but they're owned by the government, so they'll never go bankrupt. Mm. So they're area broadcast area is smaller but they also broadcast on the internet in the into places like the united states and europe so it's obvious what's going on with uh, fm radio in this country you know i think uh, fm radio in this country is dying or dead already Hmm. i mean it was pretty bad when i was there just in terms of like they might fade up 20 seconds of a song and then like three minutes of talking i don't know i never really there was an enka station that was worth listening to but that was about it i like enka uh, me too That's why I, <laughs> I love enka yeah. what's your favorite enka yeah. song eric uh 
you know, I didn't study it. I didn't really like, I haven't really bought the records. I don't really know the artist. I probably have a couple sitting around that I like randomly came up with, but um, I didn't dive deep. That's one. I like that you mentioned that. Oh, now I remember my other question. You mentioned that, that anime show run by a, a, a woman that you said was a, a pretty well-known broadcaster. And one of the first things she played on that had that kind of, I don't think it was necessarily Anka, but it, that kind of like very specific minor melody that, that, that a lot of Anka songs have that, yeah, Dumb really question: cool. What is what is Anka? Anka is Japanese country Anka? music, man. Oh wow, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not familiar. So I'm going to wait. When we're done, I'm going to send you, Eric. I'm going to send you Hosokawa Takeshi's Nani wa Bushi Dayo, Jinsei wa. And you you send it to Jason. This is the, the greatest Anka song ever made. I think. I remembered my question. So you sent me um, a bunch of videos you made. Some of the names I'm not going to remember, and, and you can prompt me on those, but I know like the Baby Shakes from New York you did a video for, and they look really good and sound good. And you've always mentioned that you spent 15 to 30 minutes on them. I don't understand how that works. Okay, um, a long, long, long time ago when I first had the idea to start doing videos for bands, you know, the bands, the bands that I shoot don't have any money, of course. And even if they did have, have money, I'm, I'm a disc jockey and I'm going to play their records. It's a conflict of interest for me to ask the bands to pay me money, I think. So, um, what I do Very is new I, school of you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you figure, you know, growing up in the seventies and eighties, you'd be hip to the payola. Yeah. Yeah. But I just think, you know, it's not, not why I make the video to, to get like 20,000 yen or something like that. It's, it's not of course, worth of it. Course. So, so, um, what I do is I tell the bands, okay, look, I, I want to make your video. Do you guys want to do that? And they say, yeah. I say, okay, there's no budget. They're like, right, I'm going to make a video. I'm going to give it to you. You can do whatever you want with it. You can post it on your webpage. Whatever you want to do with it, I don't care. And they're like, right, great. So how are we going to do it? Well, okay, when's your next live show? So your next live show is like uh, Friday night at, I don't know, this Club A. So, okay, we're going to show up during your sound check. So when you guys finish your sound check, we need like 15 or 20 or preferably 30 minutes to shoot. And um, they, they say, okay, so usually it winds up, it's about 15 minutes. So I show up with two other cameramen. So we've got three cameras and like, there's usually four band members. So, okay. So the, the first shoot, we take a, a wide shot of the whole band and then a close up of two of the people. And then the next shoot, like, so you're talking about like two or three minutes and we record the song on a CD have the engineer play it, and then they fake singing it and everything. So we, we run through that, zip through that as fast as we can, try to get three or four shots of that, and then we shoot the live take during the live. So usually we're drinking beer uh, but <laughs> between the, when the doors open and they come out and play. And sometimes there's a little extra time, and then I can do... Um, a little more kind of fun things like uh, on the Skodokoi Busu video. Mm -hmm. That was inspired by the Monkees TV show, TV show ending. Oh, cool. And um, so we took a bunch of, just took a bunch of photos of them, like, you know, make posing, like at the end of the Monkees video and put it together. And that video just passed 400,000 views yesterday. But the, just the editing on that must have taken a decent amount of time. I mean, it, it, it looks like it to me anyway. Yeah, the editing took, uh, I don't know, four or five hours. I remember trying to take a similar approach with that. I was doing a podcast called Nikkei Syndex, and I basically, I knew how badly I wanted to hear Japanese music when I was living in America, and I thought, I'm going to put this out for anyone that is Googling this stuff or trying to find it. Maybe they'll come across it. Turns out I'm very bad at search engine optimization or promoting things, and nobody ever cared, but I was trying to record some bands too, similar to you, no budget, you know, or I'm, I'm buying these guys a couple beer, beers, 
And uh, one, you're probably very wise to kind of dub in or have them like almost pantomime it or lip sync it because, um, boy, I would do that live. And in those live houses, they would blow out those camera speakers. I mean, there was no way that they could handle the volume that was being put out. And then also my friends, I mean, these are guys who are like, I'm asking for favors. And the one guy would be like showing it to his friend, but he would erase half of it. It was just a nightmare. And I don't know how to video edit anything. So then I'm asking my friend who's actually pretty good at it, but also does that for a job and doesn't want to spend forever doing it for free for me. And uh, it never went that smoothly. I mean, I got it done, but God, it just took ages to get a single thing. (laughs) So good for you. You got to find guys who who want to do it for posterity's sake. Um, mm-hmm. I'm doing it for posterity's sake because I'm going to die one of these days. And what yeah. the one thing I would just like, you know, my, you know, on my gravestone, oh, I'm not going to have gravestone. They're going to burn me and dump me in the ocean. But, um, you know, oh, he was a guy who really promoted Japanese indies and made these videos for I- indies. Do you know um, Sheila Rock, Chris Rock, the photographer? No, I know Chris Rock, yeah. Yeah, Chris Rock. Who's Sheila did- Rock. Yeah, his wife. Oh, okay. Chris Rock did a lot of uh, early David Bowie photos and stuff like that. Mm. And Mm. Sheila Rock was like the first cameraman for like The Clash. Mm. And I met her one day and we we had uh, lunch and a really nice lady. And uh, I told her I'm making these videos for these bands. And all up till that time, I was always thinking like, why am I doing this? And why should I do this? This is a lot of work, a headache. And um, a lot of times, a lot of times, halfway through the edit, the editor will quit. Mm-hmm. It's just like, <laughs> so mm-hmm. anyway, she said, you know what? When I started doing the photos for the clash and doing all that, it, it was always for free. So all I can tell you is just keep doing it because mm-hmm. one day it, it's going to really reward you to, do, to keep doing that. So, um the other day, the Baby Shakes video came out, but actually that was shot in November of last year. Mm. It, it's taken so long. And I mm. kept telling the editor guy, look, 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 could you send me the information? I'll ed- edit it. And he was like, no, 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 I want to do it. I want to do it because he really liked the band. But his, in, in the meantime, COVID happened. His wife had a baby and then there were compl- complications and he had to stay home and everything. So it took uh, almost seven months for him to finish that video. But, um, yeah, yeah. so that's why I've been really lucky in my life. And um, like, let's face it, the Rodders whole thing, that was like a joke. It, it was just lucky being in the right place at the right time. And then coming to Japan, and then I got my first radio show job at... Um, a station in Osaka and probably a month or two months after that show started, I got a show at J wave, which, which was, um, I was the Thursday night and Friday night, um, caster. And, um, yeah, but it's like NHK. Okay. The show sucks. Okay. The show suck, but it it really helps you to get another job somewhere else. (laughs) So so now after so after that after so many years I just really thought I should try to promote indies music and at first it was just indies US USA and um, USA and UK and now it's uh, basically Japanese rock and I really believe Japanese rock is happening around the world. I agree. I, I had a pretty um, extremely specific focus. I mean, I was into that. There's there's a, there's a micro scene for everything over there. So one of them is like, you know, there's a band called uh, Black and White. They're a punk band. They copyright their records 1977 because they just, <laughs> have this, you know, they just refuse to acknowledge that they're not a 1977 So that's the kind of... I don't know where I was going with that, but yeah, I mean, no, so that's the kind of thing that I was going to say 2050 something, we can (laughs) cash in on that, you know, so. No, so I mean, but even, even those bands were so good. I mean, because, so I played in a band, we were were called Manox. We played every weekend for years. So I would see four or five bands just that we happened to be playing with every weekend. And I was like, 
the quality of these bands and how seriously they take it. And they take, there's so many bands in America that kind of like will mumble that it's a new one and like, they, well, let's hope we play it okay. And then they'll kind of look down and strum through it. And these Japanese bands come out and like, it might be 6.30 and they might be the first band and they are going for the jugular. <laughs> it's just, I'm like, these bands are great. They, they're just so good. There's a big difference and I'm not dissing on American bands, but um, the rock scene here in Japan, every band looks at every live performance as a performance. They dress up, they wear costumes, and, and they're tight as hell, usually. And I often get submissions from the United States or the UK, and I look at the photo of the band, and I'm kind of like, mm, you know, it's like this guy looks like he's 63 and had a few too many Big Macs, you know. And How old are you again? Sixty-three. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm fat for Japan. <laughs> I, Just, call, I don't know. I thought it was a Freudian I'm slip there. But anyway, awesome. go on. <laughs> but you know, like I said, I don't think sixty-three-year-old guys should be playing rock. <laughs> like the Neat Beats. The Neat Beats. You guys know them, right? I do, yeah. They're like a mod, you know, neo mod, mod revival type. Yeah, they, they, they beetle haircuts and tight suits and that kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. The lead singer is forty two, and he's skinny as a as a rail. My how God, yeah. I don't. How do these guys do that? I don't know. I will tell you because I played in this band and I was like, you guys don't eat. Like you go, you do the sound check, you play the show, it's exhausting, you drink a bunch, and then you go out afterwards to like an izakaya where you're going to have like a, a couple tiny slices of sashimi or something. I'll be like, oh, that's why you're still under 100 pounds. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't tell you. Um, oh, wait, no, I can't tell you one kind of overweight Japanese drummer. But... Uh, Besides that, everyone is skinny and slim and smart. And you meet these girls, they're playing in these punk bands. And you think like, okay, what, you're, well, you're what, 24, 25 years old? And they're like, no, I'm 42. Mm-hmm. It's like, what? So, yeah. I got to say, I mean, you don't look like a 63-year-old American guy. I mean, if you told me you were my age, which isn't particularly young, I would definitely believe you. So something's working for you over there. Well, I I drink every day, you see. No, I don't. I don't. I, I try not to drink every day. Um, but this Corona thing happened, and I've been drinking a lot because there's nothing to do. I mean, I, I do my work at home. I do my work mm-hmm. at home, but nobody wants to meet. Yeah. You know, let, let's let's meet somewhere and have it just drink and talk. Nobody wants to do that. So there's nothing to do, no place to go, and. Um, so I usually, I drink those little um, small shochus, the little plastic bottle shochus, one 20% alcohol and one 12%. And then I chase those down with a couple of beers. And I'm usually toasted by then. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Boy, straight shochu. I can never really get the hang of that. I got to be pretty hard up before I'm, before I'm doing that. Well, no, no, no. I, I didn't drink it until I was probably 55 or so because I got oh. gout. Gout, gout. Do you guys know what gout is? Yes, but am I confused between shochu and soju? No, this is probably the same same thing. thing Same thing. Yeah. Oh well, what do you mean you didn't drink it straight, Eric? What do you? How did you drink it? Uh, well, first of all, I didn't really drink it that much. But if anything, you you mix it with anything. You can mix it with tea, which gives you that nice like caffeine alcohol combo. That's a winner. Um, you can mix it with soy milk. You can do all sorts of crazy stuff. This program brought to you by Takara Shochu. <laughs> well, you just reminded me I have half a bottle in the fridge I should break into. Yeah. Wow. So you're all set. So can, can I mention one last thing? Please. That I'm doing. Okay. Um, on November 16th and 17th, I'm running the Japan Indies Film Festival. And uh, th- this is a long story. This has been a brutal. Hmm. For three years, I've been running film festivals. And the first two years, wow. I ran film festivals for the government of Otami. And I don't want to say anything bad about it anyway, but the Japanese were just fighting mm. all the time. They're mm. fighting all the time about stupid stuff. So I wasn't in charge of domestic things. I was just in charge of all foreign submissions and you know, mm-hmm. making sure the subtitles are okay and stuff like that. So mm. 
after the second year of this, mm-hmm. just fighting, just keep going on. I just said, okay, you guys, I'm sorry, but I'm taking my show somewhere else. So I started the Japan Indies Film Festival, and then I contacted oh, wow. Rain Dance, Rain Dance in London, and I told them what okay. I'm doing, and I said, "Will you guys support me?" And they, really nice guys, they were like, "Absolutely." And um, that was so lucky because is this uh, Rain Dance a distributor? Uh, it's a big film festival. It's like oh, a, the film festival. Okay, it's okay, huge. Right, right. It's huge, and um, so. This year, to make a long story short, because of COVID, um, I had rented the theaters out like a year ago and paid them in full. And then mm-hmm. they wrote me a, an email probably six weeks ago saying like, okay, yeah, well, you can have your film festival, but you can only have 12 people in the theater at once. And I was mm-hmm. like, what? And that you guys didn't say that. And you have to check everyone's temperature when they come in the door. And if anyone sues us, you're responsible. Mm-hmm. So I thought, nah, I'm not, I, I can't, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. So I had to make a decision, probably in June, and I asked Raindance, can we um, show our film festival on your online system? And they said, sure. So November sixteenth and seventeenth, it'll be shown on Raindance's online system. That's about ten days after the Raindance Film Festival ends, and. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Raindance, for saving my ass. Because <laughs> if I had canceled it or whatever I did, it, it would have been a disaster. So, yeah. Yeah. But tell us more about the film festival. Is it, sorry, Japan-centric or it's an international festival for a Japanese audience okay. primarily? The Japanese, pe- people don't understand this. Like uh, big Western films, and I don't mean cu- country music film. I mean, you know, USA, <laughs> UK yeah. films. They don't screen here. The only uh, big uh, American films that screen here are Disney, or and that includes Star Wars. But mm-hmm. I've had a friend the other day, he was mentioning all these movies to me, and I was like, I'd never heard of them. And mm. Disney screens here because Disney has a Disneyland here. They're tied up with uh, Oriental Land, uh, which is a Japanese company. And so they have a lot of power and they own theaters. You got to understand in Japan, the movie theaters are owned by the movie production companies. So Shochiku owns a lot of movie theater companies. They're not going to show movies from another company. So the, a lot of the big movies from the States, they don't just don't get screened here or if they do, they, they get screened on Netflix and me being, I try to, consider myself a purist i cannot stand to watch a movie that's supposed to be on a big giant screen on a little thing like that i just can't stand that so um um in japan the film industry especially the indies film industry is basically non-existent so i'm trying to change that the whole film industry everybody in the film industry don't like me and don't like it and so that's why I think Rain Dance really supported me um, because they want to give a big fuck you finger to the in, <laughs> film industry people too because that's what they did. And um, mm-hmm. so it, it's really turning out okay. You know, I have a, a few more sleepless nights, but I think I'm going to make it. I think I'm going <laughs> to be okay, Jason. <laughs> that's great. So I'll... I think I can send free viewing links to people, so I'll send you guys. Free. Oh, thanks. That'd be nice. I think I can. Great, I'm great. not sure how it works yet. We've, we've gone decently over our time, and I really um, got to ask you mo- everything I was really looking to ask. I, I guess my as a wrap-up, is there, because you have a lot of different things going on, do you have, like, one primary source that if people just want, like, I want to know about the show and the film festival and see some videos. Do you have one centralized location for your projects? Um, no, not really. The My radio show centralized area is just MikeRogersShow.com. And there's a lot of music stuff there, videos I made and things like that. The film festival is RainDance.jp. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give you this link, but don't. Don't share it with anyone. And uh, it's Mixcloud slash Mike Rogers Show. So you guys are the only ones that I'm, I tell this link to, so your listeners can listen to it. We'll bleep it out. 
No, no, you don't you have to what? bleep it out. It's cool. <laughs> oh, great. So, and so, and the, I, I, you kind of mentioned that, and I was listening to that earlier today in a bit of preparation and for my own personal enjoyment. The idea with that is you don't want that popularized because people, why is it better if people listen to it elsewhere? Um, <clears throat> it, no, it's a political problem. The radio, radio stations want people to listen to their radio station. Sure. So let's say it plays Friday at six o'clock. So if Joe Below can listen, finds that Mixcloud link and can listen to it anytime they want, they think it takes away their listeners. And they, 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 they could be right. I'm not sure. I don't mm -hmm. really know. But I don't want them to get pissed off at me. Right? Because if without them, I only have Mixcloud. Sure. So if the Mixcloud gets really big through word of mouth, then, well, you know, I'm great, a great guy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> cool. So it's a modernist exclusive. Thank yeah. you. Great. So yeah. Anyhow, yeah. So it's been a nice talk, uh, Jason and Eric. Thanks so much. Yeah. Yeah. You as well. Thank you so much for your time. It was a lot of fun. Okay. Yeah, thanks. That was great. Come on, come on, come on.